everybody. Chase Clark and Drew Murphy here with the Buying Tampa Bay podcast. And we're glad to be back uh, with you chatting a little bit about the housing market. Uh, we, we've been gone for much of the summer and man, a lot has changed or maybe a lot hasn't changed that we thought would change. I think if we had looked back and wondered where we would be about this time uh, at the start of the year, Chase, we'd be thinking that the market would be well into its death spiral by now and that mortgage rates would have brought everything to an absolute standstill that uh, you know we'd be in the middle of a recession that's certainly what we would have been thinking if we were listening to the talking heads about this time last year but here we are in august of 2023 and by many measures things couldn't be much different so tell me a little bit about what you're seeing uh maybe we should start with the whole mortgage interest rate scenario because that's driving so much of this picture what are you seeing right now and why aren't we in a real estate death spiral that that everyone was projecting we would be in hey peter what's up man you know that is the the million dollar question right it's like when are mortgage rates going to go down how did we get to seven percent you know, it's a it's a tough question, but seven percent seems to have become the new normal. People are getting used to it. We're starting to see sales volumes, you know, stabilize a little bit and pick back up. And you know, but people are still asking that question all the time: is when are rates coming down? And you know, if you look look at the papers, watch the news, read online, wherever your source of media is, you're always hearing about inflation numbers, right? Inflation. Where is inflation? Mortgage rates are typically the 30 year fixed rate is tied to inflation. They're highly correlated, right? And so we know inflation has come way down off its peaks of eight or 9%. But during that same period of time, rates have stayed high or continued to rise. And people are like, what's going on? As inflation goes down, rates should come down. And normally that's true. But if you remember back to the spring, we had this crazy event happen with bank failures, right? We had three of the largest bank failures occur in US history just this spring. And what happened with that was it shook up the Fed a little bit. The Fed got nervous. People got nervous. They kept raising rates, partially because the Fed looks in a rearview mirror. They always look backwards. They're not really looking at what's really happening today. They're looking at three, six, nine, 12 months in arrears. And so they kept raising rates. As the Fed raises rates, the rate that banks have to pay on deposits goes up. Money market rates go up. And so people started pulling their money out of their checking accounts and putting them in money market funds so that they could get a higher rate of interest. And in doing so, banks had less money on hand at a low cost of capital to lend out at current interest rates. And so when that happens, banks had to recapitalize. They had to find funds that they could lend out because people had moved their money into money market accounts where they can't have that as their reserve basis. And in doing so, banks started selling off their mortgage-backed securities. The 30-year fixed rate is 100% tied to the bond market and the mortgage-backed security bond market is what's driving up these 30-year fixed rates. When banks sell bonds, the price goes down. They flooded the market with supply of bonds. When the price of bonds goes down, the interest rate on the bonds goes up. And as the rate on the bonds goes up, that's what drives the 30-year fixed rate up because it's tied to these mortgage-backed securities. So in a nutshell, the 30-year fixed rate is staying high because there is an, a glut of supply of these mortgage-backed securities on the market which is driving up the bond rates. And that's where we find ourselves right now. Will the rates go down? I don't know. You listen to experts, they're thinking we might get a half a point movement downward by the end of the year, which would take us back into the high six range. That's good. Um, good for buyers out there looking for something a little cheaper on the interest rate front, but not a ton of movement expected in this market right now, unless we end up seeing a full-blown recession because rates always fall during a recession. Okay, so affordability and interest rates always seems to be the key question, right? And people are looking back and saying, you know, wow, interest rates seem so high relative to what I've experienced so far in my life or in my recent history. And so we have to go all the way back to almost like 1995 or earlier 
where we see interest rates equivalent to where they are today in the low sevens, right? So that's a long time ago. Chase, where were you in 95, right? I was just, I would think I was like 15, right? So 16, maybe I was in my junior year in high school. So I don't have a relevant perspective of what the market was like, at least a firsthand perspective of what the market was like back then. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, our, what, what were folks doing from an affordability standpoint when rates were in the sevens and uh, you know, and how do they, how do they buy a home at all? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the typical benchmark rate is 30%, right? You don't want to spend more than 30% of your income on your mortgage. And it's hard to get approved by a lender for anything over that, right? So as rates go up, there's two things at play. Have your wages grown during that time so that you can afford that higher rate and that higher payment? Or is the price going to have to come down or is your budget going to have to be reduced so that the, the affordable price of a home for you is now less than it was a year ago? And for a lot of people, that's the case. They just can't afford all the house that they want to have now because the rate's seven, it's not four. And that's a, that's a big jump in rate, especially when you're talking about a median home price in the 400000 range. Um, so I think that's where people are finding themselves today. And the question we get all the time, right, is, well, should I wait? Should I wait till rates come down to buy or should I buy now? You know, And that's the question we have to address every day for people. And depending on what market you're in, that answer is going to vary. But here in Tampa Bay, there's a lot of data out there to suggest that you should not wait, right? Prices are continuing to rise. And what you'll miss out on is greater than the extra interest you're going to pay if you wait for the rate to drop, let's say, a half a point. So you're saying that we're going to miss out on opportunities that we will be in a worse financial situation if we wait to purchase real estate and we're waiting for an interest rate to fall than if we buy today. Yeah, you know, I was listening to uh, you know, a great resource in this in this uh, area of the industry, Barry Habib, the other day, and he gave this example from Palm Beach County, Florida. Okay, in the next twelve months, home prices are expected in, in Florida in general expected to increase three percent. Right now, we're hovering around the two and a half three percent range so far for twenty twenty three as far as home price increases. By the end of the year, the forecast is that that's going to be at six percent. So we've got about another 3% to go over the next six to 12 months in what we'll call HPA or home price appreciation in the state of Florida. And rates are only predicted to drop about a half a point during that time. And so if you do the math on that, you'll save $380 a month on your mortgage payment if you wait for that rate to come down a half a point on average, right? But you're going to lose out on almost $39,000 of appreciation on an average home. And so the math just doesn't work. So you're definitely going to want to buy now and not wait for that half point reduction if a purchase is in your future uh, for the next in the next 12 months of your future. Well, then talk about why we should feel like home prices will continue to grow, because that does seem to be the other half of all of this. If we're in a situation where interest rates remain high, where incomes may, well, I guess we're saying that incomes will grow, but may not grow at the same pace that we see an increase in home prices, then why, why should we think necessarily that we'll continue to see an increase of, of home prices equal to 6% or so per year? It's simple supply and demand, right? Um, what the forecasts are showing us right now is that the supply of new homes coming into the market over the next 12 months is going to be about 1.4 million. Okay? But the demand for those homes is going to be closer to 1.6 million. And so anytime demand is outpacing supply, Economics 101 tells you the price has to rise. And that is what we're seeing here in Florida. Definitely what we're seeing here in Tampa Bay is we just can't produce enough new housing units to meet the demand of everyone that wants housing in this area. So this week, 
Big news broke uh, in the investor world that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway made substantial investments in some of our nation's largest home builders. I think that included DR Horton and Lennar and NVR. And he bought up with the equivalent of about 780 million or so in shares of these assets. So he was sending a strong signal to the market that what we're seeing here is, is likely going to be of continued strong growth in the home builder segment. Your statements is that that is the, your sentiment is the reason why we're seeing major investment in home builders is because we're going to that that is the only way we can really address the supply side of this equation, and that's what is causing home prices and demand really to be where it is right now. Insufficient supply. We can't make existing home product out of thin air. We can make new home product, and new home product is what is absolutely necessary to meet this strong demand for homes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, the process of building a new home doesn't happen overnight. These builders have to go out and acquire the land, get the entitlements, permit the houses, get the houses built, and then sell the homes to these people that want them. And that process can take at least 12 months. And so these forecasts for new home construction are pretty accurate because we know how many homes are going to get built in the next 12 months because they're already permitted today. And so we can easily look at active permits and figure out how much of that demand are we going to be able to meet over a 12-month time horizon. So we've heard for all year about the the gray cloud hanging over the home builders. We we saw home builder shares down at record lows earlier in the year, and now we have home builder shares uh, moving in the exact opposite direction and and buoyed largely by these major votes of confidence by big institutional investors like Berkshire. So tell me about that roller coaster. I mean, what? Why is a market that is rational, I mean, if it's a year of inventory and we know a year ahead of time what demand will be like, why is it that like eight months ago, we were trying to bury some of these home builders? Well, I think a couple of things that are at play, right? When you're talking about large national publicly traded home builders, they have to look at the national dynamic and the national economy when they make decisions about how much they're going to build, where they're going to build and do all that. And they've got shareholders they're responsible to. And ultimately, their stock price is really what matters. And when there is the fear of a recession on the horizon, I think that gives some of these big builders a little bit of pause about will those 1.6 million people really be there when the homes are finished and will they be able to afford our homes? Um, that's definitely part of the equation. And then I think the other part of the equation that we're still dealing with coming out of COVID are material costs and material supply chains. They've gotten so much better over the past six to 12 months now, but they're still not where a lot of people feel like they should be, especially when it comes to prices of materials, they continue to fluctuate. And so a lot of these big builders try to lock in long-term contracts with fixed costs for certain supplies. And if their suppliers now aren't able to fulfill that contract or meet that supply demand, that's going to kind of slow down that process of new construction. Chase, one of the things that seems to continue to be troublesome, at least in theory, is the idea that the average sale price for homes in July was somewhere around $450,000 in our local market here in Florida, $450,000. And the median household income is, well, about $60,000. I think if we, you know, it was it was sixty, it was $60,000 in 2021. Uh, so a couple of years later, we could probably trend it up. That's census data in 2021. We can send, trend, uh, trend it up probably about 10%. So we're in the mid 60s in all likelihood for our median household incomes in that same market with average sale prices nearly six times uh, what the median household income is. How does that, what, what kind of a future does that portend or, or project for um, affordability of homes? Or is there something that we're missing in that? Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. That's the million dollar question everyone's been asking is, okay, affordability, you know, what's happening here? I mean, if you look at that $60,000 median household income, 
if you go out and buy a $450,000 house and let's say you have $50,000 to put down and so you're going to borrow 400 grand right now at 7%, you're going to spend half of your gross income on your mortgage payment. A lender won't allow that. So, I mean, you've got to have two incomes on average in a household to be able to afford, you know, what, what's out there on the market to buy on average right now, $450,000 purchase price. Um, and I think, there, I think there's some, some things that play there, right? When we look in, in Tampa Bay, if, you're, if your household income is $60,000 a year, you really can't afford to live here unless you've lived here for a long time. Um, I was doing the math with some first-time home buyers uh, the other day, and what I see is the threshold for being able to afford that $150,000 or $450,000 home is a gross household income of around $120,000 a year is what I see to be able to afford a new home and live in Tampa Bay in a, in a comfortable but not extravagant way. A very modest living here in Tampa Bay right now is requiring that kind of household income. Right. So that's about twice the current average household income in our county, which is probably in Hillsborough County, it's somewhere around the mid, mid 60,000s. That's sure. a huge, it's a huge step up. So I think you, you have to conclude then that one of two things is happening. Either the buyers are well above the, the median household uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, or we have non-county and non-state residents purchasing these products, right? You have people who are not influenced by median household income statistics. That's not their economic reality, right? Which you could certainly make the case for if we look at our migration stats into the state. How much do you think it's out-of-state buyers, out-of-county buyers that are driving the demand for homes in our local area. So we have some data that circulated around our office that about you know 30 to 35% of all home sales in 2022 were cash purchases in Florida. And so you know we're thinking about that that reality. These are people who are not going to be constrained by mortgage by more, the need for a mortgage or may and or the need to justify a household income uh, of close to the ratios that are required by lenders in order to buy them. These are people who are going to be able to, or at least 30% of all the buyers are going to be able to pay cash for a property. That may also affect you know, what we see in terms of the, uh, un the unaffordability uh, potential of these ratios, that you have plenty of people moving into the area that might be retirees that might have sown, sold a homestead property in another area. They may report a lower than average uh, or lower than necessary household income in order to justify that purchase price. But since they're flush with cash through a sale or through retirement, that doesn't really matter, right? They're yeah. going to buy this home at these average prices. And com compared to where they're coming from, they're still wonderful bargains. They're still tremendous value for money at $400,000 on average compared to what they're paying for in the Northeast or in the major metro areas of the, of the United States. Well, it really is hard to believe when you start hearing talk of an impending recession because there does seem to be so much money still out there sitting on the sidelines for people ready to buy a new home, you know, invest in a business, spend money on vacations. I mean, I mean, we were in Europe this summer, right? And it, I couldn't believe, like, I mean, that when you look at the stats on pent up vacation demand and how much money people are spending on European vacations this summer, um, you know, so the economy has been good in general to the public and they have money. And I don't think there's a single segment, price segment of the housing market right now that's suffering, right? You would expect that like million dollar homes would be sitting on the market right now. Or like, you know, uh, there's a $15 million home that was just listed over in Clearwater, right? Um, that was, I think it was sold within four months. So, I mean, that's a different echelon of somebody looking at a $400,000 new home, new construction home or a $350,000 town home, but all segments of the market seem to be doing okay. Um, so I don't know where the actual impact is going to show up first, right? We've started to see a little bit of lag in rents, um, from a standpoint of it's not the, you know, red hot 
rent market that we had where you could just name your price and someone would pay it that we had six months ago, right? We're, we're starting to see more discerning renters um, that are starting to have options on that side of the market. And I'm not sure if that's because of home ownership conversions or you know what's driving that kind of dynamic here in Tampa Bay. But we, we have seen what I feel like is a little bit of softening there. Not that rents are going down. It's just that there um, is more available for people to choose from. Well, what, tell me what your opinion will be then if we continue to see major development in the new home category and that that ends up being the, the product of Target, the desirable product for most buyers in this area. We certainly will have existing homes all throughout our areas, certainly in our urban cores. And those existing homes will not be uh, will not be of the quality or of the standard in a lot of cases of what new homes are built uh, are being built right now, uh, right now and into the future. They won't have the same amenities, the same upgrades in some cases. They will be in established neighborhoods and fairly good locations, but w- but they will not be the same in uh, in appearance or potentially in desirability as new home construction will be. That gap will continue to widen between the age of those, uh, the vintage of those two homes, and we might see a case emerging of of a very of a substantial bifurcation in the housing market of old homes and new. Do you sense that that will create any kind of problem for the old home segment? Will we start seeing strong demand for new homes, lots of retirees who want, uh, or uh, new home buyers who want a low maintenance product, but we'll see stuff that's already been built and now that is aging up into that 60 and 70 and 80 years old, which won't be as desirable. There'll be those smaller ranch houses built in the mid 50s of the 1900s, right? Uh, Which will have three bedrooms and one bathroom and no garage, which won't be as attractive for that person moving into the area or even that person starting to buy a home. And we'll see some languishing potentially in that product segment. What do you think? Where will we see, how will we see that shaking out? And what does, what do we do as investors who might own some of that or homeowners who might own some of that older product to stay ahead of what might be a preferential shift to new homes? Yeah. So, you know, right off the top of my head, the first thing I think about when it comes to new construction is distance from the urban core, right? And that hasn't really mattered to people so much over the past three years because of the work from home setup that most people have enjoyed, right? I think a lot of this is going to depend on whether that trend continues and what percentage of any given local population continues to not have to fight traffic to the urban core, right? Because like the Heights, Seminole Heights here in town, Water Street, all of these type communities, Davis Island, South Tampa, part of the reason that these these communities have been so strong in value and desirability over the years has a lot to do with their proximity to urban centers of work. Um, now you've got people moving to Dade City to live in Murata because they built a lagoon out there and they don't have to make that commute because that commute would be something you know that people would start to reconsider after a few months of everyone going back downtown. I think that's going to be a big driver of that. Um, you know, new construction is always preferred to existing by most people, but location is the trump card when location matters. Right. So your position will be that if we can maintain a work from home environment or if the employment centers move into the suburbs close to where the new construction will be, then we'll continue to see strong growth trends outside of earth and cores into new construction communities. But the converse, if we need to move back into some kind of a concentric, a reasonable concentric radius from our uh, from our employment centers, then we'll see an increase in demand for infill and for older construction homes. And then certainly what will follow, I imagine, is ongoing investments in renovating, upgrading, and improving those in those interior homes, even though they're aging, to make them acceptable for buyers who want to live close to their jobs. Yeah. And one other thing to consider in that is if you move into a 40, 60, 80-year-old established community, it's not likely that you have an HOA. And so sometimes it's going to be um, pure preference, right? Do you want mature landscaping? Do you want character in your home? 
Do you want to be um, somewhere where it's been well established and you're, you know, you got generational families at play, or do you want to go into a suburban, you know, a uh, suburban new construction um, type environment where, you know, your oak trees are three centimeters around and you've got a, a play place next door to your house and you've got a tiny postage stamp that's enclosed by a white PVC fence and, you know, your neighbor's house you can touch when you put your arm out the window and you've got to pay, you know, $200, $300 a month to an HOA for amenities that may not mean anything to you. Um, the cost of upkeep and renovation of an older home in an established community may be less costly than the HOA fee you're paying every month. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different variables and people have different tastes and desirabilities um, when it comes to their, their place of abode. But, you know, um, new construction is always a safe play in people's minds because everything's new and no one likes to fix anything. You know, we've, we can say that the uh, experiment with 100 and 100 and 100 plus year old housing in America is a relatively new one. But because there aren't that many communities where we have 100 year old housing where people are still able to live in it, right? We, but increasingly we do, right? We have inner city areas in many of our major cities where housing is 100 and, or, or more years old. And, you know, we even have some suburbs and some of our more established uh, communities in the Northeast and the West Coast, which is in excess of 100 years. And, you know, and what remains after 100 years, what is still sound and habitable in many cases tends to be extremely desirable, right? Because it has location, but it also has oodles of character, just like buckets, right? It's oozing the kind of lifestyle that people want to have because it's so, because it has character from a bygone era and it has been you know upgraded or, or you know maintained to a standard that people nowadays want to live in. So we must, I suppose, make the assumption that the ingenuity of homeowners and the American people will outlast the uh, the obsolescence of the homes that were built 70 years ago. That we will make improvements in that product and improvements of the desirability of that product to meet our current desires, and we're not just going to allow that to be demoed and you fall into disrepair entirely. There's stuff that will, right? Certainly there's some communities that were that are thoroughly obsolete and built out with obsolete product and the future of those remains uncertain, but that's certainly not all. And that's, that's certainly nowhere close to all of even the homes that were built in the forties and the fifties here in Florida. So I guess have a little faith in your fellow man, maybe have a little faith in your urban planning centers and your neighbors and their ability to be able to turn their old homes into something desirable. That might, uh, that might also help you have established confidence in infill areas. Yeah. Yeah, you know, t two quick things about that, about this new home new home versus existing home concept. And one is that one of the things driving new home sales right now are that I've, I've worked recently with three different buyers with three different builders. And these three national builders are offering these buyers a 4.99 fixed, 30-year fixed rate on a loan through their internal mortgage company and $30,000 to pay for that rate buy down and their closing costs. And so when you look at that, when you're looking at a rate right now of seven, seven and eight on a 30 year fixed loan in the traditional market versus a subsidized rate from a builder's lender at 4.99%, not only can you now qualify for a much higher price, and we know the builder's rolling a lot of that cost into the price of the home and their profit margin is, is still pretty healthy, but that's a very attractive play for any buyer right now. And I think that is, is a significant play in driving people to new construction right now are these subsidized rates. Yeah, without a doubt, they're locking in the cost at a far lower basis because of these mortgage companies, because these builders are able to uh, control the economics of the mortgage. Yeah. The other thing I think that is, that's at play is one of the reasons we've seen such a, a dearth of supply on the existing home front over the last 12 months is because during COVID, 
people renovated their homes. Remember, I mean, we're, we were hearing for months about people taking out home equity lines of credit, putting pools in, remodeling their kitchens and building offices in their homes to work. And, you know, all of these things, all these upgrades that they've always wanted to do. Well, they did it during COVID because they were home for two years, right? And, you know, they figured out, hey, now's the time to do this. Well, those HELOCs that they took out on those existing homes are now at nine plus percent interest. So when they took them out, they were at five. Now they're at nine. Okay. If they haven't paid these things off or are making good progress paying these things off, these things are going to get painful for people. If people put their renos on credit cards, credit card rates right now are 22.5% on average. That's very painful. So if you're in an existing home that you fixed up real nice, and you're like, I'm not going to sell because I can't go anywhere. I don't want to pay market prices for something new. But now you've added four, five, six, seven hundred dollars a month onto your payment. And you're thinking, hmm, that house out there in Dade City that's brand new and the builder is going to subsidize me at 4.99%, that's looking pretty good. And I've got $150,000 of equity in this house. Maybe it is time to sell and go to the suburbs, you know? And I think we're going to maybe, maybe start seeing some of that kind of thinking here over the next 12 months and some of the more you know desirable premium area existing home inventory. Well, without the fear of recession hanging over everyone's head the way it was 12 months ago, I certainly see and I certainly sense a, a resurgence in confidence all across the board from folks who are interested in buying uh, new construction to existing homeowners who are willing to take the shot now of selling and seeing what they can uh, what they can try to get on the market. The constrained inventory continues to be a strong driver of high prices here. And so we have not seen a fall off in home prices that would force people to have to stay in their homes or necessarily to force them to sell right now to avoid the decline. So that can work both ways. But overall, confidence remains strong. And I think we're going to see increasingly people willing to take a risk on some of this. The risk doesn't look like it's that dangerous. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I'll reference Barry Habib one more time in this podcast because I, I feel like he's excellent. If you can get a hold of his material, it's great. One thing he said the other day on one of his shows was that there actually still is a great risk for recession. And it lies in the hands of the Fed. If the Fed continues to hike interest rates over the next six months, it's almost undoubtedly going to lead to a recession. Um, just based on the economic factors and math alone, it will cause a short-term recession. So it'll be interesting to see if the Fed is going to continue to hike those short-term interest rates and what impact that continues to have on the business environment, right? Because business lines of credit are at 9% now and they're going to 10 that's really painful for businesses that need working capital to operate. And so we'll see what kind of constraint that puts on the economy if we do see another one or two rate hikes like Jerome Powell is talking about doing over the next six months. Well, definitely a sobering uh, thought and something to keep some of the uh, maybe unbridled optimism in check. I'm glad we have both perspectives because you don't want runaway fear or runaway optimism. Uh, to take over. That's when mistakes happen for sure. So interesting conversation today. Glad we're at this point in the year. We can start looking back at some of the projections for the start of the year and see that they didn't entirely pan out. Uh, we can start looking ahead to see the one to see how we might be able to reevaluate our projections for the future and make good decisions. Uh, but uh, great stuff, Chase. And where can folks go to learn a little bit more about what uh, what we're talking about here? Yeah, check us out on homeprop.com. Uh, we've got a robust website there. We can help you with any of your needs in real estate, buy, sell transactions, investment properties, property management. Uh, look us up, contact us, and uh, let's see if we can help you on your way in your real estate ventures. Great stuff, Chase. I wish to talk to you. And until next time, see you out. See you later.